In Ephesians 1.4, Paul also reminds us that in the eyes of God, when we trust in Jesus, we become holy and blameless. I mean, this is a crazy thought when you think about it, because let me ask you a simple question. Do you feel holy and blameless? Honestly, I don't. When I look at my life, I said there's so much craziness. You don't want to know, you know, if I had to have all my thoughts plastered on the walls here, I'd be running for the hills. The worries, the temptations that go through this mind at times are anything but holy. So when I remember it's the shed blood of Christ that cleanses me and makes me holy, then I'm free, you see, to focus on, instead of focusing on myself, focus on the Lord and what he's done for me. Abounding in Faith is the broadcast ministry of Emmanuel Bible Church of Howell, New Jersey. If you are blessed by this message, please subscribe to our podcast or YouTube channel. You can also download our app by searching for IBCMJ in the Google Play Store or the Apple Store. For more information, please visit us at www.ibcnj.org. Our speaker today is Senior Pastor Joe Suazo. Hey, let's stand reading for the Word of God. If uh, you have your Bibles with you, turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. There are also Bibles in the pews if you want to take advantage of those. And that would be page 979. 979. And we're going to read verses 25 through 33 in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, we uh, thank you for this text of Scripture and just the amazing privilege that many of us here have in the marriage relationship. And yet, Lord, we pray with sobriety because we know uh, that which can bring such great blessing can bring heartache. And so we ask as we just uh, look at this text, Lord, that we would just be mindful that in Christ we not only become new creations but have the great capacity to learn to love 
as Christ loved the church. And we pray these things as Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, this is uh, our second week in a mini-series within the book of Ephesians uh, that we've been doing a series in, and we've been focusing on marriage. Uh, l- the last time we were together, uh, when I was speaking, and now this week, if just as a, a, a little bit of review, we were covering that thorny text where wives are invited to come into submission to their husbands, and we were discussing uh, that week that without understanding the Godhead, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were is community, equal in essence, but in community. God is love. Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Spirit from all of eternity. And, and when we see the revelation of who God is in the text of Scripture, what we find is that there's governance in the Godhead that when Christ was here on earth, he was submitted to the Father even though he was co-equal in essence with the Father. And so when we look at the word submission, it's not a relinquishing of will per se. It's not a submitting to uh, abuse or manipulation but rather it's a, a term that's used in terms of the way we relate with one another. And God has put in place governance in human society. In the marriage first, we also see it in the church with elders presiding over, overseeing, uh, with the invitation that the congregation comes into submission to the elders. We also see it in governance where we're invited to submit to governing authorities All this is because the character of God is being revealed through this all. Remember, God created man in his own image. And because God is love and loves within himself and has governance, we too have the capacity to love. But the problem is, because of sin, instead of love, we see tremendous amounts of brokenness and heartache, especially in the arena of, of marriage. And so we discussed all that in week number one. This week, I want us to give attention to uh, two phrases and one word. Two phrases and one word to help us see how the husband's call within marriage is like or similar to Christ's work in the church. The Apostle Paul is giving us a metaphor, if you will, a picture to help us in our marriages. A metaphor is a picture to help us understand a spiritual truth with greater clarity. So the two phrases and the word, the word is sanctify in verse 26. Sanctify. The phrase, the first phrase is one flesh in verse 31. And then the second phrase in verse 32 is profound mystery. Now, the metaphor here in these verses can read like this. Just as Christ's work sanctifies the church, God's people, so the husband has a call to his wife to live godly before in such a way that it has a sanctifying, holy influence on her. 
just as Christ is the head of his church, his body, the church, so man, when he leaves his family to start a new one, becomes one with his wife. And then finally, just as in God's heart, from eternity past, before even creation came to be, he had an idea of salvation for men. An idea that the Son of God would one day come to earth. This was even before creation, that now this profound mystery is revealed to us in the gospel and revealed to us in the marriage relationship. So let us look at these three truths together. Let's begin with the sanctifying work of Christ. Let's ask a basic question. What is sanctification? Sounds like a fancy theological term. Well, in the original language, it comes from a word in the Greek and to make holy or to set apart. When we speak of the holiness of God, we're saying that because of who God is, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God has all power, all knowledge, and pure love, that there's no other being like him. Therefore, he's set apart as holy. That's why we say God is holy. He's like no other. When holiness is used of men and women, it also means set apart. The word for saint actually is the same root word. To be set apart, to be holy. So those who are in Christ are now set apart. But what sets us apart? Uh, it's not our character, but rather it's God's work in Christ in his church. And so there's two parts of this being set apart. One is God's work, and two, it's our working with God. The first begins with Christ's work on the cross. When we put our faith in Jesus, the scripture teaches that we're forgiven of our sins. We now stand holy and blameless before God. This is a great mystery to us. Instead of God looking at us as sinful because of Christ's shed blood, he now looks at you and I, through Christ, as holy and blameless. I mean, this is a great truth of Scripture. There's nothing I or you can do for this holiness. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, uh, those great verses that many of us have committed to memory. It's, we're saved by faith through grace. This is not of ourselves, not of works. It's a gift from God uh, that none of us would boast about it. So it's, it's God who accomplishes this first aspect of holiness that we're set apart. And there's nothing that we can say that we've done it. This work of Christ on the cross sets us apart from the rest of sinful man. Remember, because of sin, all of men, Scripture says, stands condemned by God. John chapter 3, 
verses 17 and 18. It says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. And those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are not condemned, but those who do not believe stand condemned already. That's the word of God speaking now. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul also reminds us that in the eyes of God, when we trust in Jesus, we become holy and blameless. I mean, this is a crazy thought when you think about it, because let me ask you a simple question. Do you feel holy and blameless? Honestly, I don't. When I look at my life, I said there's so much craziness you don't want to know, you know, I, if I had to have all my thoughts plastered on the walls here, I'd be running for the hills. The worries, the temptations that go through this mind at times are anything but holy. So when I remember it's the shed blood of Christ that cleanses me and makes me holy, then I'm free, you see, to focus on, instead of focusing on myself, Focus on the Lord and what he's done for me. This is tremendous freedom, by the way, because most of us uh, struggle with guilt, shame, and that guilt and shame has a tendency to erode our understanding of who we are. But God says, no, you're holy and blameless. And when we understand that, we're freed from all that guilt and shame and we can walk upright, not because of ourselves, but because of what he's accomplished for us. What did Jesus say? I've come that you may know the truth, and the truth would set you free. But there's another aspect of this, sanctification and holiness, and that is the way God changes us to become like Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, you know what the Bible calls you? A babe. You know, I love the memories of when my children were six months, a year, and, you know, just feeding on milk. My daughter will kill me if I say, my, my younger daughter was vivacious in her appetite. She's a little pudge, you know, and she would just, she needed milk. But what happens is if you try to feed meat to a, a four-week-old baby, you'll destroy it's health. So it's only ready for milk. And so when we came, come to Christ, uh, we are babes in Christ. But how do we move from becoming a babe to maturity? And, and that's where the second aspect of sanctification comes in. While the first part of sanctification speaks of our position before God, we're forgiven, we're holy, we're blameless. The second one is practical in the way we live our lives. So when we wake up in the morning, we choose to follow Christ. When we wake up every day, we choose whether or not we're going to bathe ourselves with the word of God, his presence, and to go out into the world to live a certain way with a certain disposition. And when I do that, my attitude changes. My behavior changes. The way I look at people changes. The way I view my purpose in life changes. 
Everything about me changes because now, because of who I am in Christ, I am living a holy life, you see? Now, I may be born again, I may know the Lord, but what happens if I succumb to lust? Am I living in holiness? No. What happens if I'm worrying incessantly about money, even though God's promised me he'd take care of it? No. What if I have bitterness in my heart towards another individual who's hurt me instead of forgiving, as we're called to do in Christ? No. I can make a lengthy list of all the sins that Christians succumb to, and when they succumb to it, Jesus Christ is not their Lord and Master. That sin is reigning over them, yet God has provided everything we need to live holy lives if we follow him. That's the key. If you go back to our text now, in Ephesians 5, verses 25-26, you could read it this way, as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. That is what secured our position before God is holy. So that, look at verse 26, that he, that's Jesus, might sanctify her. How? Cleansing her through the washing of water with the word. The word has the idea of a potential but not inevitability. Well, what do I mean by that? The word of God has already been spoken. That's a certainty. Whether I follow it, choose to meditate on it, whether I commit it to my heart to live according to it, that's my choice. I could live, you know, I could just brainwash myself with Netflix videos. I could be constantly thumbing through my uh, stock portfolio app and worrying about my future retirement. There's a lot of behaviors I choose to take on myself. But when I'm meditating on the Word of God and I'm following Christ, He leads me in another direction. He leads me in a way that I would trust Him fully. I love what the Lord said to Joshua when he was entering in the Promised Land. Here he is, an experienced commander, inexperienced army, going against experienced armies. He says, listen, if you meditate on my law day and night, you're going to prosper and have success. You see, we can't claim to know Christ before a fallen world if we're not living like him. If we claim Christ and we're living worldly, then all the world's going to say is one more Christian hypocrite. We don't want to be those kinds of people. Amen to that? Now look at, again, verse 25. And I think I have a chart. There it is. So if you look at this chart, we talked about a metaphor. A metaphor is like. This is like. So Jesus Christ in his church. Christ loves sacrificially. Husbands, listen now, all you nitwits, pay attention. How are you to love your wives? Answers on the board, by the way. 
I'm like making this an easy test for you guys. I know guys are not that smart. Sorry, ladies. Takes a long time for us to get it. How are we to love? Thank you. Christ and his church, how does he cleanse us? How does he bring us along in the sanctifying process through his word? Men, how are you to lead in your homes? Hint. Hint. Christ is going to present his church with splendor. Uh, the idea of that is a sense of, of glory and beauty. Men, we have a beautiful passage in Peter where it says that we're co-heirs with our wives, meaning that we're going to be with our wives who've claimed Christ with us, with them forever and ever. If we're living that way with our wives, knowing that we're going to stand before God, knowing that we're fellow heirs, Peter is inviting us to honor her and to respect her and to love her. This has to do with the way we parade our attitudes, our words, and our actions if we're truly being transformed by him. So that's all sanctification. Just threw away a bunch of notes, but that's all right. See, I have all this study, but sometimes I don't get to it. The next thing is, we have sanctification. Next thing is union with Christ. This is a profound truth when we talk about the husband and wife being one flesh and the body of Christ and Christ himself being one. Look at verse uh, chapter 5, verses 28 through 31. We read this, that the husband is to love his wife as his own body. Just as Christ loves the church. And then after quoting, he's quoting now from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when, when God describes to Adam what the marriage relationship will be like, he says the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. Here Paul is pressing on with this metaphor that just as the church, God's people become one with Christ, Christ is the head, we, his body. Uh, you know, this is just a side note. This is not in my notes. Does how many people remember the 1950s sci-fi film where the headless woman is kept alive in a pan with all kinds of transfusion stuff like this. It was a sci-fi movie. Am I the only one that watches these crazy movies? Yeah, well, no, it was just a head. You know, just a head in a pan of whatever with all kinds of tubes going in it. Don't ask me why this was a horrible thing, but in the 1950s, this was bad, you know. Today, of course, this would be mild. And, and it was, you know, whoa, this woman is alive. And then she was controlling people telepathically. So it was like she was a Wonder Woman with just her head. Now, what made the, the movie funny is we know that 
The head without the body really doesn't stay up. Once you're guillotined, that's it. Let's get back to my notes. Don't ask me why I wanted to talk about that. I just love that film because it's so ridiculous. So just as God's people become one with Christ, Christ is the head, we is body, in a similar way, now listen, husbands, we are one with our wives. The implication here is if my wife is one with me, then just as I take care of myself and love myself, so too will I love my wife. After all, Paul wrote, no one hated his own flesh. Now think of how practical this is. All the abuse that I've listened to in my office during counseling of wives who've been verbally and emotionally abused by their husbands because of selfishness. They're certainly not following this. I mean, we're all guilty to some degree, men. But we have a call, a unique call, to love and cherish our wives as our own bodies. You know, we all have a routine to take care of our body, to feed it, to, to clothe it, to cleanse it. The idea here is a sense of nurturing. And uh, when we take on that pattern, a woman will respond well to that. I'm no longer of the world and its desires or sin and its destructive patterns or the devil and his empty philosophies. I am now a child of God no longer under the power of sin, the world's desire, and now I have solidarity of Christ, and because as a man I have solidarity of Christ, I'm going to love my wife. And for those of you who are not married, by the way, this principle extends to all relationships to some degree. We're called to be a loving people. This also speaks of an identity change. You know, if I'm, my identity is selfish, angry, bitter, and thinking that, look, my wife is there to serve my needs. What do you think that's going to do to the marriage? But if my identity is, I'm a loving agent of God, called to love my wife as my own body, how do you think that's going to change the relationship. It's going to radically transform marriage. Uh, there's another chart. Going back to our metaphor, right? Christ is the head of the church. The husband is the love as one body. Christ nourishes and cherishes. The husband is to nourish and cherish. And by the word, by the way, the word nourish means to bring to maturity. It's the same word that, that you would use to, when you're raising a child and you're doing everything you can to care for that child, that that child may reach maturity. It, it, you know, what happens, you hear these horrible stories of abuse, right? Where families have malnourished their children or have abused their children. Are they nourishing in church? No, they're not. And so the husband has a unique responsibility to do that just as Christ does that to us when we're in relation with him. And there's no other allegiance when, by the way, you're, you're one with something. You know, you've heard the, the proverbial thing, having 
uh, one foot in one place and another foot in another. That's not the way this is. You're all in to the marriage. You're all in to your relationship with the Lord. And, of course, the application there is not divided. Not divided. So we saw the sanctifying work of Christ. And the man taking that role also to be a sanctifying influence. We saw the oneness of the relationship between the church and Christ and how the marriage were called to oneness. Uh, There's one other aspect here. And this is truly an amazing phrase. Um, The mystery of Christ and his church and the mystery of the marriage relationship being a reflection of God in the world. Um, The verse, the phrase in verse 32 is profound mystery. And the word profound comes from the original word in the Greek called mega. You know, they use mega for the lottery. Mega millions, you know, whenever it gets up into the, you know, it doesn't, it always, it never makes sense to me. When the odds are the worst, people invest more into these stupid lotteries. You know, so the higher the amount gets, the, by the way, the odds are going down. You who play the lottery, I don't encourage it. Uh, as the odds go up, it's just the sensation of it. Oh, this is a billion dollar lottery. Mega millions. That's a lot, right? Profound ministry. It's like mega mystery. Well, what is this mega mystery? Well, there's three things I want us to, to talk about as we just finish up our time. First, it was kept hidden in the heart of God. That's what mystery is. It's hidden. The idea here is before God created man or anything else, in his heart, something was hidden, a mystery that now in Christ is revealed. This is a theme that comes up many times in the scriptures, by the way. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. We read that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain before the foundations of the world. That means before the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, brought creation and man to being, God already knows, because remember, he's all-knowing. He had this knowledge of what salvation would look like. It was kept hidden, but now revealed through Christ. Earlier on in Ephesians 3.9, when Paul's explaining his ministry to preach the gospel, he described it this way, to bring, listen now, to bring to light forever... To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. We see this again come up in Paul's great benediction to the Roman church. And this speaks of a second quality, and that is the mystery revealed. The mystery revealed. Now to him, listen to what he says, who's able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, listen to what he says, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept hidden for long ages, but now 
has been disclosed through the prophetic writings. That's the Bible. And has been made known to all nations. I like that mystery reveled. I like that. The idea here is that that God has brought it to our attention. We know. It's not a mystery anymore. It's a mystery revealed. One final thing, and we'll just finish up here. And I think this is a real application point. We see this mystery revealed. We see the mystery that was kept hidden in the heart of God. But now it results in our changed lives, our transformation. I know through Christ and his word how to live. Don't leave here and tell me I I don't know. You do know. You're just not listening. This knowing, the mystery revealed, changes the way I relate to all of life, especially for husbands relating to their wives. Going back to verse 33, look. Look at the application here. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is a knowing of how to relate. So husbands, wives, struggling with conflict, not a surprise there. Take two sinful human beings, put them in a small confined space, guess what happens? Sin. But when you have a directive from God, a knowledge from God, to know how to live differently, a transformed life, both husband and wife come together in community to be a reflection to what God would have the world to see in terms of his character and his gift of salvation. Respect and love. You know, I remember this illustration in a marriage seminar. Gary Smalley, who is a Christian psychologist, counselor, speaker, gave this amazing um, illustration, which is I've never forgotten. He, someone had loaned him a Stradivarius that was worth about three or $400,000, and he had it in his hands. And maybe a group size, maybe like this, a couple hundred people or whatever, he gives it to the person in the first row. He says, I want you to pass that around. He got permission from the owner. How do you think the people passed it from one person to another? Very gingerly. Everyone was like, oh. And this was his application. Men, how are you treating your wives? You treating her like that Stradivarius? Or are your words biting, sarcastic, full of anger? Are you cherishing, nourishing, loving? Or is something else going on? 
You see, when we live that way, the marriage relationship becomes a wonderful picture to the world of what God looks like. His love. And how the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are loving themselves. And this is a privilege for each of us to live differently that the world may know Christ and his great love towards us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beautiful picture that you've painted for us of the marriage and Christ and his church, Lord. It's sobering, but yet directive. And Lord, I pray for everyone here in their marriages that they may truly reflect these truths that we've discussed and read this morning. I pray for that, Lord. I know it's not easy. I have been a terrible husband at times. But thank you, Lord, for this great picture and call for us as husbands to live differently. And if you're here this morning and maybe you've been abused, maybe you've been broken, maybe you've been divorced, and uh, it's hard to hear these truths because you know you've been on the other end as victim. Can I just pray for you this morning that Christ would give you the ability not only to forgive, but also to just grow close to him, knowing that he comforts and he takes those wounds away as The scripture says, by his wounds we are healed. You may need that this morning. I pray for you. And for those who are young here, have yet to be married, and you hope to be married one day, I pray for you, Lord. I pray for them, Lord, that they would um, get a vision of what true, biblical, Christ-like marriage looks like, that they may be Uh, a testimony to this world that's so broken in sin. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.